When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find a seat. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. This edition, I've got Sean Hackett back here with me to talk about what's happening in the marketplace. So, Sean, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Um, uh, enjoy the 4th of July and back raring to go. So. Yeah, I like 4th of July. This is the first year that I didn't spend any money on fireworks in a very long time. My kids were at grandma's house and I was just watching on the driveway, so... I didn't get to act like I was five, like normal. So it was. It was well, nice. if you see how many fingers I have, you know I obviously <laughs> fired too many off. So you gotta let go of them, Sean. That's, that's what you. That's what you. <laughs> I know. You know. Everyone said, Sean. You know, you're not supposed to light and hold on to them. I just misread the instructions. So well, easy come, yeah. easy go. Yeah, yeah. You missed. A, you know, misunderstood what the word throw meant. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right. Well, we've started off. Um, Last podcast, we talked about this weather pattern coming in that was going to send a tremendous amount of rain into the eastern and central grain belt, and and boy, did that come true. Um, I've talked to people in just about everywhere, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana. You know, I was back in Kansas, then in Wichita over the 4th of July weekend, and they've been incredibly dry, and I, I think they got 
four inches of rain while I was there. And there was a, another three to five uh, inches uh, predicted in, uh, in that area as well. So they're going to get, you know, somewhere around 10 inches of rain uh, here in the month of July. But like you've talked about, this is going to be a short-lived scenario that could add. Um, you could see an August where we get hot and dry again. And what's that look like before we get there? What's the initial response been to the market with, with the rain that's coming thus far? Well, I mean, obviously the corn market's gotten swashbuckled, you know, from 635 yeah. all the way down to $5 again, give or take. Yep. Um, so it's obviously factoring in that the worst case scenario is off the table and it is off the table. We are not going to have a major crop problem. We can argue, you know, is it somewhat below trend, but the major crop problem is virtually impossible to occur um, unless you have a derecho storm that flattens the entire corn crop in the entire United States, which is not going to happen. So, so that's reality. Um, now, obviously, a wet July is good for soybeans. There's nothing bad about that. It certainly is a good way to start, but you know, we know hot, dry August is what major crop problems for soybeans are made of. And it does look to me um, that there's some pretty significant variables that are changing. One is the median Julian oscillation is going to be shifting out of phase two and into more of a phase five, six, which is a drier weather pattern. And the very cold sea surface temperatures that have been persistent through May and June into early July off the East Coast of the United States have started to really, really warm a lot. In fact, they're starting to get above normal. And that means a much warmer weather pattern from that change is going to occur. There's a little bit of a delay. You know, sea surface temperatures don't immediately impact. So, but later on in the month, we're going to start to see a warmer pattern. So it looks to me like we're setting up for a warmer, drier uh, pattern to really get going at the end of July. And I do think the weather models are going to suggest it could at least go into the middle of August. In the least, in the least, that says to me, a tradable rally in grains is likely in the least to put some weather premium back on and obviously to see whether or not it's a, a near miss, meaning that, it, you know, the rains come in the back half of August and everything's fine. Or, you know, this becomes a month long pattern where soybeans get into a really major serious trouble. Um, with the acres that the USDA claims we've planted, you don't need 15 to 20% below trend line yields to get in a lot of trouble on soybeans. Corn, you needed that because of where we were with acres and where we were with demand. With soybeans, if we're down five or 8% below trend, Casey, and you run the numbers, they really don't work very well. So I think that's very important to understand that with corn, we needed a major crop problem to get the big move. We had a shot at it and then Mother Nature pulled the rabbit out of the hat. We don't need that. You know, like I said, if we're down, if 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 we're down four or five bushel to the acre below 52, the balance sheet doesn't work very well. Um, and so so we don't so 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 to me that really so now we're shifting from corn is the one to watch, corn is the thoroughbred to watch. Now soybeans are the one to watch. If soybeans catch a major crop problem and the market worries about all, you know, all that it would worry about, and we get a market that trades, you know, 
17, 18, 19, you know, something that it could certainly potentially do. Whether corn deserves to be higher or not doesn't make any difference. We have to maintain a three to one ratio so that Brazil doesn't plant the rest of the Amazon, the soybeans, and produces the biggest crop the world's ever seen times two, right? Yep. So, so, so as an example, you know, if, if let's say soybeans were to go to 18, a three to one ratio says then summer corn potentially could trade for six. But of course, a hot, dry August, by the way, is not necessarily great for corn. It's not a disaster, by the way, but you take bushels off in the grain filling stage for corn. So right at this point, um, that's really where we're at. And I think we are um, in the hunt for kind of a, a, a turning point here. It looks to me, based upon the weather pattern that we're looking at, that we probably could t- turn the grain markets up somewhere in that third week of July. I know we had this uh, uh, talk that late May would be a bullish turning point, which turned out mm-hmm. to be a very good timing window. It looks to me like late July is another important time. It may just be a tradable rally with which farmers can sell, by the way. you know, I'm, I, it, We're not far enough along to say that August is going to be hot and dry the whole month, but I think that there's going to be right. sufficient worry, at least into mid-August, we're going to get a tradable rally. So any farmer who didn't sell over the wintertime or didn't sell on the rally we had during June and is feeling he missed the boat, you know, you're going to want to make sure that you take, you do, you, you, you do what you need to do on the rally into August to get yourself in the right place. So that's the way the pathway looks to me. I'm pretty confident in that forecast. Um, and obviously, we just have to see whether it's just kind of a tradable rally. You know, corn goes to five fifty, and that's it. And maybe soybeans go up a buck or two, and that's it. Or it becomes something more sinister. But but I do believe that the pattern—it's a very credible, high likelihood that we're going to have at least a hot, dry pattern from late July into mid-August, and we'll refine that as we get closer and some of these variables get a little more clear. So, yeah. All right. So, lot of stuff going on there. So I'm. Kind of researching some of the stuff, kind of going through, getting some notes made um, on kind of what we're going to talk about today and, and looking at a few things. One thing kept popping up over and over again. Obviously, you know, we've talked about El Nino and what that looks like. And is it 23 or 24? And kind of looks like it's going to be 24. But I keep, I kept seeing this thing pop up about a, a super El Nino. Are you, are you familiar with that at all? A super El Nino means that the sea surface temperatures of the Central Pacific uh, the 3.4 region is what they call it, uh, is two degrees above normal or more. That's what a super El Nino is. The last one we had was 2015, and the and the and the one prior to that was 1997. So you get them every once in a while. You don't get them very often. The the super ones, you know, the ones that are over two. Um, it does not look like that's where we're heading. Um, uh, and and I, and I'll explain why it does not look like that's where we're heading. <clears throat> um, if you look at what the models had been projecting, we've stalled. El Nino has stalled for the entire month of June, meaning we were rising, we were rising, we actually reached plus point, a uh, plus one degree above normal, and now we're sitting around plus 0.7, um, and we've been going sideways for the entire month. The Southern Oscillation Index, which is a measure of pressure differentials in the Central Pacific that determine wind direction is positive. The 30-day moving average of the SOI is positive. That is La Nina signature, 
not El Nino century. If you're going to have a serious El Nino ready to take off, you would want that seriously negative. The 30-day moving average is now plus four. That is not indicating that we're looking at a strong El Nino uh, strengthening in July. The longer we delay the El Nino strengthening, the lower the peak. The peak is likely to occur at the end of the month. So if you look at the models, as I do, uh, they were at two and a half. Then they're at 2.2. Then they were at plus two. Now the most aggressive models are at plus 1.5 because every week that goes by that the El Nino is not advancing, they have to keep, you know, they have to keep lowering down. So it does not look like this is going to be, and by the way, that's typical of a negative Pacific decade oscillation. It doesn't allow for a super El Nino. It means we're going to probably have a moderately strong El Nino somewhere around plus one to plus 1.5 peaking late fourth quarter. Um, the multivariate ENSO, for those that aren't aware, just because the sea surface temperatures of the Central Pacific are plus 0.5 degrees warmer or, or higher, does not mean you actually have El Nino. El Nino is the combined effect of the sea surface temperatures of the Central Pacific and the atmospheric response to that. So this, you know, everyone just jumps on and says, oh, we have El Nino. Here it is. Not really. So the multivariate ENSO, which measures six different variables, including sea surface temperatures, atmospheric pressure, all kinds of different things, including Southern Oscillation Index, just came out yesterday for its June updated reading. It's a monthly reading, and it's at plus 0.2. It needs to be at plus 0.5 to suggest the atmospheric response is El Nino-like, which means we are still not in El Nino. We're not. Nowhere in the world are we seeing consistent El Nino weather patterns. Nowhere. Southeast Asia is, is, is wet. It's not supposed to be. We had some rains in Australia that were surprised. We're not supposed to have it. You know, Obviously, the U.S. has not seen typical El Nino weather. We've had a, We had the driest... May, June on record. And, you know, so, so we do not have it yet. We will get it. But remember what we said earlier in the year that we were not likely to see the El Nino really take effect in the atmosphere for weather patterns until we got into the fall. And right, right now, that's what it looks like. It does not look like we're going to see that multivariate and so give you that El Nino reading until probably September, um, at, at which point your El Nino weather pattern will start to really take hold and become the dominant force in the marketplace, which is why South America's growing season is going to be the first growing season that is going to be El Nino weather pattern. Um and I think that's a very important distinction, and, and that's gotten a lot of the weather forecasters have been misfiring on a lot of their weather forecasting um, because they just had this idea that the second you reach plus 0.5, it's all over. It's El Nino, and that's it, and, and it just it just does not you – know, the atmosphere is, so, is very complicated thermodynamic system with all kinds of fluid mechanics uh, that are at work. It, it just doesn't operate in an instantaneous – light switch fashion so so the, so the super let me put it this way 
I'm not saying it can't happen. What I'm saying is what I'm saying says that the chances of that happening are very, very remote at this point in time, given what, how things are progressing. I do not believe that we're going to be able to get that high. And remember, there's two models. There are statistical models, which we believe are the better way to look at things. Meaning you look at 165 years of statistics and you run those statistics and look at correlations. And then you have dynamic models, which try to um, look at current trends and overweigh those current trends versus statistics. Those are the ones that have been saying super, super El Nino. The statistical models have never said that. They've always said moderate El Nino. And it looks like the statistical models are starting to win out and become more of the correct forecast than the dynamical models. And so at this point, Casey, um, you know, nothing is for certain when you're forecasting anything, but I would weigh the probabilities of our super El Nino to be at best extremely remote at this point. Yeah. I just had never seen it before. And that was when they brought it up. I don't know if it was just one of those super hype things you see on the internet or if it was actually, I think so. It sounds like it just means really, really, you know, that the highest you can get, you know, yeah. uh, I think the highest, Two plus two point five, I think, is the, the warmest we've ever seen those Central Pacific temperatures. I, th I don't think two thousand fifteen quite got there. Ninety seven was, I think, ninety seven might have been the strongest El Nino we ever had, or pretty darn close to it. But um, you know, so that's just what it means. It just means a super El Nino um, pattern, and um, you know, as I said, it, it just does not having the Southern Oscillation Index go majorly positive. Um, the 30 moving are majorly positive is not the sign you want to see at this moment in time to say we're going to have a super El Nino by the fourth quarter. The Pacific to Kittle oscillation, Casey, is still very strong. You know, that's not indicative of having a super El Nino. Um, the strongest, uh, the strongest El Ninos we were able to generate with a Pacific to Kittle oscillation this strong at this point in time in the summer was moderate. I mean, we've, we've never had a super El Nino with a negative PDO that's been that's this strong. Doesn't mean it can't happen. Just means it's never happened before since we've been measuring this stuff. Is that is, is that so 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 having said that, so weak El Nino, moderate El Nino, super El Nino, they actually mean different things in terms of what it means for weather. Some places are much much more impacted by a weak El Nino than a strong El Nino. And vice versa, meaning everyone thinks, oh, it's a strong El Nino, means it's it's it everybody sees a strong El Nino effect. No, some regions actually see a more mild El Nino effect if it's really strong. So you have to measure and equate the strength of the El Nino to what the historical correlations and teleconnections have been to the various regions that tend to be impacted by El Nino. And it doesn't mean strong means worse, it just means different. So when you're doing, when we doing our weather forecasting, we're going to be putting out our longer term work for the fall and into next year. You know, we're going to be working with a moderate El Nino kind of pattern. Um, and it's going to be short, sweet to the point and gone. Meaning we're going to reach a peak here in the fourth quarter. And by the time we get to the uh, late spring, summer of 24, we're going to be pretty much in a neutral condition again. Um, so this is not a long-lasting El Nino. It's going to be really quick, really short, really sweet. But remember, just like we talked about the transition from La Nina to El Nino, you just don't turn the switch. 
just because we go out of El Nino next late spring, summer, doesn't mean we're going to have a, doesn't mean we're not going to have an El Nino pattern. It means that the El Nino pattern is going to carry over into our growing season. That's the history of these things. And one has to always look at weather forecasting on a lag effect with these shifts back and forth. And of course, there's always other variables, Casey, that are part of the equation that you must look at. El Nino, La Nina is like an important overall backdrop for, for climate, but there's a lot of other factors that interact that determine exactly what's going to happen. So as an example, the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is very, very important to weather in Asia, in India, Southeast Asia, in China, right? So uh, all the weather models have been forecasting that we would have a positive Indian Ocean Dipole, warmer west waters versus cooler east waters on each side of the of India. That hasn't happened. We actually have a, neg- a moderately negative Indian Ocean dipole. That has a hugely different teleconnection pattern for Asian weather with an El Nino. Um, and so that's so so that's the kind of thing that you have to also keep in mind. There's other factors at work. By the way, typically, Casey, getting back to your super El Nino uh, question. Typically, if you're looking at a super El Nino coming, you typically get a very strongly positive Indian Ocean Dipole. The fact that we've gone from a weak positive to now a negative, it's going in the wrong direction. It's actually signaling that the El Nino is not going to be advancing in the manner with which you would typically see. Because typically the IOD follows ENSO fairly strongly during a amplified Super Elena. So all these factors are saying back off or you know, backing off on, on El Nino strength. All the models are doing it, and all the all the weather forecasters are going to have to recalibrate what they thought was going to happen versus what actually is going to happen. So okay. All right, Sean. Hey, good stuff as usual. If folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what's happening with uh things over at Hacker Financial. What's the best way to do that? You can check our Twitter page at Ferdix11. LinkedIn page. Um, can go to our website at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. You know, we're not an habitual poster, Casey. You know, we don't believe in giving out all kinds of free information to everybody, um, uh, you know, because obviously yep. we have a lot of paid subscribers who, you know, we want to make sure they're getting information that for their for the value for their money. Sure. But we do from time to time, we'll put stuff out on there. And of course, we do talk about a lot of these things on your show that we gladly do. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, those are your places to go to keep tabs on what we're doing um, and, and to see if how we look at ag markets might be of value to your listeners. Okay. Sean, I appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Thanks, Casey. Always, always a blast. All right. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the video version on YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related and all the information for the Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee, September 11th through the 13th. If you want to be a part of that, uh, go ahead and get that signed up for there. And if you're one of the first 150 people, which is filling up very quick, you will get $50 off of your registration fee from the good people over at Axon Tires. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour. We're Sean Hackett. Smooth smart, folks. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com.
Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. In the 21st century, hard work.